On Tuesday, I went to Waihee and attended the funeral of one of our fellow Franciscans. Uh, she was a slightly crazy lady, um, but, uh, but a lovely lady who lived out the Franciscan way in a way that I found, well, at times intimidating, really, uh, especially around issues of simplicity and poverty. She'd been known she'd been dying for a couple of years, and so uh, she had organised with her grandson to make her coffin, but it wasn't a standard coffin. She wanted to go out in style, so her grandson had made for her a boat. And uh, this boat sat on a little trolley, and uh, all the grandchildren and great-grandchildren and children had decorated it. Uh, The boat's name was Gone Stiff. Uh, And along one side, it had uh, like a bucket list waiting for God crossed out. During the funeral, the deacon said... Uh, who was leading the service, and I think Jan had kind of put most of the service together. She said a couple of times, Jan's body has gone, but her spirit remains. Her spirit lives on. Now, I understand that she said that to provide comfort and hope to the children and the 22 grandchildren and 25 great-grandchildren, but in this season of Easter where we celebrate the physical resurrection of Christ, I wondered where that statement, her body has gone, but her spirit lives on, fitted. And I want to focus on that this morning. Now clearly, the physical resurrection was very important to both Paul, whose call we heard this morning from Acts, And to the Gospel writers. Again, we heard that in John's Gospel. A physical resurrection. All of them make a really big thing of it. Now, one of the reasons for that is the difference between the Greek and the Hebrew world. In the Hebrew world, there was no difference between the spiritual and the physical. It was all intertwined. It was just one world And it was God's world. Now the the Greek saw things very, very differently. For them, the spiritual world was really the real world. That was the world we should aspire to. It was the, the, the proper world, the perfect world, the good world. And the physical world was seen as corrupt, as imperfect, as a mirror image of, and a bad mirror image of that spiritual world. Now, Paul and the Gospel writers were in fact Hebrew. They'd grown up in the Hebrew world, they'd been shaped by the Hebrew world, they were Jews. But they were, particularly Paul and John, living in a Greek world and writing to a largely Greek audience. So, Why was it that they made life so much more difficult for themselves by insisting on this physical resurrection? And there were enough people around who really struggled with even the concept of God, who is spiritual and is perfect and is all that is good, 
coming amongst us in physical form. That made no sense. In fact, there was a whole group of people, as there probably still are today, who said, well, that clearly couldn't have happened because the spiritual would never become physical. What is good would never become what is corrupt. And so Jesus only appeared to be human. Jesus only appeared to be physical. Jesus was only ever spirit. And because, well, it just made no sense for the spiritual to become physical. So why would these writers make life so much more difficult for themselves, insisting, as we heard Paul do a few weeks ago, on a physical resurrection? Well, one of the reasons is because if you just focus on the body is gone, but the spirit lives on with God, the focus then for life becomes not what happens now, but what happens after we die. And so this is pretty much what Christianity has done. It is focused on what happens after we die. And this world, this life, simply becomes a stepping stone to what happens after we die. And so for a lot of Christians, maybe even some of, some of you here, the importance of this world is simply so that we can be saved, so that we can experience eternal life after we die. And there are others who pretty much are the same, except everyone who, after they die, ends up with God. And then there's people like me in the middle who go, well, I'm not really sure what happens after we die. I'll leave that to God, because that's God's job. When this happens, when we just focus on what happens after we die, then Christianity becomes a religion that is only concerned with what happens after we die. Really. I mean, this world simply becomes a stepping stone to the real world, which is Greek thought. It's exactly Greek thought. This world is a stepping stone to the real world, the spiritual world. And that means, as I have had Christians say to me, we don't have to pay attention to what happens in this world because it's not really that important. What is important happens in the spiritual world. This world, the physical world, will pass away. So we don't really have to care, apart from making sure that people are saved and can go and join God after they die. And so we don't have to care about poverty, we don't have to care about hunger, we don't have to care about injustice, we don't have to care about disease, because God doesn't care about any of those things, because God only cares about what happens after we die. And there are a lot of Christians who believe that, maybe even some of you. As long as we have eternal life in the spiritual world, then everything else can be ignored. Well, Paul and John were Hebrew people, and they were not going to have a bar of that. For them, what happened in this world was God's concern, because this was God's, this world is God's concern. And so here are these two Hebrew writers who saw no distinction between the spiritual and the physical writing 
For a Greek world who saw the spiritual as all important and the physical as somehow corrupt, insisting on a physical resurrection. Now for John, one of his constant themes is eternal life, which we keep thinking about means something that happens after we die. But actually in John's Gospel, eternal life starts around about now. Eternal life is something that happens in everyday life. Eternal life is something that happens in the nitty-gritty of our everyday life. It should shape how we live that everyday life. Eternal life wasn't about the sweet by and by. Eternal life was about the here and now. And that's why John wrote his physical resurrection stories. To draw people back to this world. And we heard one of those resurrection stories this morning, so I want to spend a moment or two, maybe three, exploring it. Now this is the third of the resurrection stories in John's Gospel. The first two are kind of where the first ending comes. There's the first two stories and then the Gospel finishes, and then sometime later on somebody said, maybe John hmm, maybe we should have a third one and just add on to the story. So they added this third story, which is kind of interesting. It's also interesting the way it portrays Peter. Now this is a Peter who has experienced the risen Lord twice. And his reaction to that is, I'm going to go home. And I'm going to pick up life as I had before I met Jesus. And I'm just going to pretend that none of this ever happened. When he says he's going fishing, he's not saying, and David Rice, I feel like having a little R&R and go do some fly fishing in a lake somewhere. This is Peter saying, Peter the fisherman, I am going back to life as I used to live it. And the other disciples who are with him go, you're right. Let's just leave all that Jesus stuff behind and go fishing, which is what they do. Now, the interesting thing about this story is it's very, very similar to a story in Luke. Only Luke's story is at the other end of Jesus' ministry, right at the beginning. It's the call of Peter and Andrew and James and John. And this story is also a call story. It is calling those disciples out of the life they have returned to into a new life. So here they are, out and out fishing. And as I read that story, I wondered about Peter. I wondered about his motivations. And I wondered how much his motivation came from his guilt. His guilt that he had deserted, that he had denied Christ three times. His guilt that when Christ had been taken to, the, to be crucified... Peter, like nearly all the other disciples, went the other way and hid behind a locked door. His guilt that he could just not do anything with this resurrection. That the best he could do was go home and start life again. Well, they're out there fishing and they see somebody appear on the beach and they don't know who it is. It could well have been a buyer which is what was pretty normal. Somebody coming to buy your, buy your fish, and then they would take it away. 
It takes a while for the penny to drop, but when it does drop, Peter says, Peter, then the old Peter, the impetuous Peter, the unthinking, impulsive Peter appears and he wraps himself in his clothes and he leaps into the water. Now that's a pretty risky thing to do. We acted out the story in uh, a Methodist Easter camp on Lake Karapira and it was admittedly a little colder. But um, it was a lot colder actually, it was freezing, I was glad I wasn't the one in the water. And this person did have a wetsuit on, but by the time she swam to shore with that sheet around her, she said she nearly drowned and it took all her strength to get up onto the beach and her lines had to be said by somebody else because she was just lying there trying to catch her breath again and get some energy. So Peter diving into the water, wrapping himself up in these clothes, which were pretty big clothes really, that, was, that would have been hard work from getting back onto the shore. So that's the old, unthinking, impulsive Peter. And when he and the other disciples get onto the shore, well, Jesus does as he did in another story in John's Gospel where 5,000 men and some others had gathered lots of others. He, he fed them. He met their bodily needs. These guys had been out all night fishing and he said to them, come and have some of my bread and fish. He didn't say to them, I'm going to spiritually feed you. He didn't point to heaven and say, let's not worry about all this being hungry stuff. One day you'll die and go to heaven and be with me. He said... Come and join me around this fire and bring some of your fish and let's have breakfast. He pointed them to life now. Now in the story, Peter's strong. He's in control. It's his old Peter. But when Jesus starts to talk to him, then he hesitates. Now in the Greek... John uses two different words for love. In the first two interchanges, the word Jesus uses is agape, which means total, unconditional love. And the word Peter uses is philios, friendship. Now there's a whole lot of argument within scholars about whether that means anything. Some say... John was not a Greek scholar. Aramaic and Hebrew were his first languages. Greek was, well, he had to write in Greek because that's what everyone else wrote in. And if he wanted his gospel to go anywhere outside the, uh, the Jewish readership, then it had to be in Greek. But he was not a Greek writer. It was not his first language. It was kind of uh, G-S-O-L, Greek. Uh, speaker, well, he was a Greek speaker who mostly spoke other languages. So he didn't really understand the difference between agape and philios. That's what some of those scholars say. But I actually think that in the story, there, there is a deliberate reason why John has used that. The Peter before the crucifixion was bold and rash and impulsive. He leapt out of a boat to walk on the water. He said without hesitation, I will never deny you. But when faced with the question, do you love me, agape, unconditionally, more than these others, he hesitates. 
he stops. He remembers that the last time he was faced with this kind of option, he said impulsively, Of course, Lord, I love you. I will never deny you. And a few hours later, he denied Christ three times. And so this time, he hesitates. Now, sometimes we can read this question as a question about loyalty. But it's not a question about loyalty. Implied in this question is the forgiveness that has already been acted out by Jesus. Jesus' actions and Jesus' questions says, says, I love you and I forgive you. I forgive you that you denied me. I forgive you that you deserted me. I forgive you that you hid in a locked room. But I still love you. I am still absolutely committed to you. So what about you, Peter? What do you say? Are you absolutely committed to me? And as far as Peter can go is, Yes, Lord, you are my friend. Because that's as far as he can go. So Jesus asks twice, Do you love me unconditionally? And each time Peter says, Yes, Lord, I love you like a friend. And so on the third question, John has Jesus saying, Do you love me as a friend? And Peter says, Yes, of course I love you as a friend. And he's hurt, and he's angry, and he's probably a whole lot defensive. You know how that hurt and anger you get when there's, you know you're not quite there and they keep pushing you so you get angry? I think that's what Peter's anger and hurt is here. He's been found out and he doesn't like it. Now Jesus' response to I can only love you as a friend is a really interesting response because he says, well, that's good, but the time will come when you will hold out your arms and someone will put a belt, someone else will put a belt around you and you will die on a cross In Rome. Because that's basically what Jesus is saying. So now, you can only love me as a friend, but the day will come when you will love me and follow me unconditionally, and you will meet your end on a cross. All that you feared and ran away from, you will embrace. I find that a really hopeful story. Not that I want to die on a cross, but that despite my feeble responses to Jesus' invitation, responses that lead me to feel slightly intimidated by my friend Jan, who seemed oh so much more Franciscan than me, despite that, Jesus keeps inviting me. And just like Peter... Jesus meets me exactly where I am. But then promises to lead me on to agape love. A love that I am still unable to love anywhere close yet.
Now after each question, Jesus asks Peter to feed or tend his lambs or sheep. And we can interpret that to mean spiritual feeding. And I've heard sermons where they've talked about that being spiritual feeding. But the really interesting thing about that was that Jesus had just fed them with bread and fish. So I think actually that what Jesus was saying was, if you want to be a leader, you have to feed those who, lead, those who you are leading with bread and fish. You have to take care of their physical needs. You have to take care of their life in this world. Not point them to what happens after death and say, never mind, you're hungry now, but one day you'll be leave this body and your spirit will live on. But actually, feed them with food and look after them, care for them, tend them, just as Jesus did when he was alive, washing their feet, being a servant, which I think means that I should invite all of you around for dinner every night. I'm not sure about that. So today's Gospel reading offers me both an invitation and hope. It offers an invitation to see the physical resurrection and as, as important, no matter how hard I struggle with that concept. It is important because it declares that God's concern and promise is for here and now, and not just for the sweet by and by. It is a sure sign that God is in the business of redeeming this world, and not just interested in what happens afterwards. That God is concerned about this world and all its problems, problems of poverty and hunger and disease and injustice. And that means that we have to be interested in God's work of redeeming and recreating and resurrecting this world, bringing it from death to life. And I've got to admit that that feels pretty daunting, really, because there are lots of times when I don't live up to that in any measure. There are lots of times when I don't feel like I love God anywhere near enough. And I certainly don't love God's people anywhere near enough. There are lots of times I don't pay attention to God's redeeming work. I'm too busy trying to do the things that are under my nose in this parish and in my life. There are times when people like my friend Jan make me feel inadequate. Because I live out this gospel life so much better than I do. But in today's reading, I am also offered hope that just as Jesus met Peter where Peter was, in all his grief and doubt and hesitation, Jesus will also meet me where I am in all my grief at my failings and all my doubt and all my hesitation. In this story... Jesus meets not only me, but meets all of us in our grief, at our failings, in our doubts, and in our hesitation. This story declares that God is compassionate and invites us as far as we are able to go for now, but keeps on inviting us to go further. So I wonder how you respond to any of this. 
Do we look for life beyond the grave? Or do we look now for eternal life in God's work of redeeming and recreating and resurrecting this world, bringing it from death to life? And I wonder what we are invited to do as we walk beyond Easter and live resurrected lives. So I invite you to just pause for a moment and in the bedlam, think about